Well, good morning. As you can see, we're starting a brand new series today uh, through the book of Esther. This will be our summer series. I uh, hope that you'll come every, every Sunday with a notebook and with your Bible and, and uh, pen ready. <clears throat> you may or may not have heard this story, but those two little boys, ages 8 and 10, and they were just the kind of guys that were just always kind of getting in trouble, and mom and dad tried as best they could to manage that and, and help them be good young men, and but they just seemed to be losing that battle. They were known in their small little town for all of their mischief. And so the parents were at wit's end as to what to do about their son's behavior. They threatened and they punished and they took away things, all that kind of thing. And just couldn't seem to get a handle on their son's behavior. And so the parents heard that the pastor in the town uh, had helped other little kids. And so they thought, well, it's worth a shot. Let's ask him if he'll talk to our boys. And so the pastor agreed that he, he would try to sit down and talk to those little boys. He said, only thing I'm asking is that I would talk to them individually. And she said, okay, that'd be fine. And so the pastor sat down with the youngest boy first. And that the oldest was outside of his office. And, and he sat down with the youngest boy and he, and he asked him this question, just trying to establish a you know, kind of a, a rapport with him, but also trying to, to establish uh, a little bit of a, a theological framework that they were going to be using in this counseling session. And so the pastor said to the young boy, he said, son, where is God? And the boy made no response. He just kind of fidgeted in his seat, wasn't sure what to say or what to do. And so the, the pastor asked the question again, trying to make sure he had the son's attention. He raised his voice just a little bit, a little bit more stern. He said, son... Where is God? And again, the little boy is just eight years old. He doesn't know how to answer that question. He's he's not even sure what's going on or why he's there. And so he's he's struggling with all of this. And and he's just sitting there, put got his head down, and it just kind of made the pastor a little uh, a little mad, I guess you would say, agitated. And so he got a little more stern this time, and he kind of shook his finger at the boy and he said, "Son, I'm talking to you. Where is God?" And the little boy jumped up. He ran out of the room. He grabbed his brother by the hand as they were running out. And they ran out together. And the older brother said to the younger one, what happened? And the younger brother said, we are in big trouble now. God is missing. And they think we did it. <laughs> well, today we're starting a brand new summer series through Esther. And one of the unique things about the book is this. God is missing. Yeah, you heard me right. One of the unique things about the book of Esther is God is missing from the book. You can read the whole book. And I've done it many times in preparation for this series. You can read the whole book, first chapter all the way to the end, and God's not mentioned one time in the book of Esther. It's the only book in the Bible that you can say that about. It's the only book in the Bible where God's not mentioned. God never appears in this book. He never speaks in this book. He doesn't even send a prophet to speak in this book. No, no angel shows up. There, there are no obvious miracles in this book. Uh, there's no mention of Jerusalem or the temple or the law. There's no sacrifices offered. No one repents in this book. There's no mention of a priest or worship. Nobody even prays in this book. So you can imagine then over the years, there's been a lot of questions as to why this book is even in the Bible. It's been a very controversial book over the years. Why is Esther in the Bible? Why do we have a book in the Bible that doesn't even mention God? Why do we have a book in the Bible that, that doesn't even try to mention His name? 
doesn't indicate his presence in any form or fashion in the whole book. But for some of you, I bet that sounds a lot like your life or maybe your home or maybe your marriage. God is missing. If you're honest, God is missing. I mean, it'd be nice, wouldn't it, if he had write something in the sky? If God would just write something to say, I'm here, I'm here to help you, it'd be wonderful for some of you for what you're going through. Wouldn't it be nice if God was there like that and wrote something, a message to you in the sky? Or it'd be great if, if you could hear an audible voice in the middle of the night and, and God would just whisper into your ear, reassuring you that he's there and he's going to provide for your needs. It'd be wonderful if when you prayed for your marriage or you prayed for your finances or you prayed for your son or your daughter or you prayed for your parents, it'd be wonderful if God actually answered within the hour or at least by the next day. But too often we go through life, whether we verbalize it or not, too often we go through life wondering, where is God? It's like he's missing. It's like he's not even here. I mean, does he lack the power to answer my prayer? Does he not care? Is he paying attention at all? And the book of Esther says, yes, God is there. God does care, and God does have the power to meet the needs in your life. And He is paying attention. Oh yeah, He is paying attention to you. And in those times when it seems like He's missing, He's really not. One person put it this way, this way said, God works in the story of Esther, not through the visible hand of a miracle, but through the invisible hand of providence. Providence is an important word in this book. If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Esther, we'll be looking, kind of scanning the book in a few moments. But if you like to write notes in your Bible, you might want to write this note in, in your Bible. Uh, Esther, by the way, is in the Old Testament. If you're trying to find it, find Psalms, go to the left, go past Job, and you'll come to Esther. Maybe on the, the heading of that, that first chapter, you might write, this book is about God's providence. In fact, if you look at the title slide, Esther and the Providence of God. See, that's the main theme of the book. Esther is the main character of the book, but the providence of God is the main theme of the book. And so we need to deal with this question, what is divine providence? Well, the word providence, put, look, look on the screen, the word providence comes from the Latin word providentia. And you can break that word down into two words. The word pro means before or ahead of time. Videntia means to see. It's the same word we get our word video from. So when you put those two together, it says something like this. Providence is the ability to see ahead of time. I'm, you might want to write that again in your Bible. Providence is the ability to see ahead of time. Which is exactly what Almighty God does. Listen to me, church. Over in the Life Center, listen to me. God has the ability to see ahead of time. That's providence. He sees the events in our lives ahead of time. That's something we can't do. Now, now listen, we're great at history, right? We can look back and figure things out. We can look back and see what's happened. In fact, finish this sentence for me. Hindsight is... 2020, exactly, we all know that, right? 
we know that, it's, that we have this great ability to look back and see and to understand. But God has the ability not only to look back, listen to this, God has the ability to look forward and to see clearly what is ahead. Now, you and I can't do that. The best we can do is look forward and dream. The best we can do is look forward and plan or, or to look forward and, and hope or maybe even to look forward and worry. But we cannot see what's going to happen. But God can. That's His providence. But listen to this. God not only looks ahead, He always is working to accomplish what He sets out to do. You see, the reason that God is looking ahead is because that allows Him to accomplish His work. Whatever it is that He wants to do, whatever His will is, whatever it is He's trying to accomplish, God will always accomplish it because He can see ahead. It's His providence. He can see before it happens. It's kind of like if you and I were playing checkers. If you somehow had the ability to see ahead of time what my next move was going to make, you'd beat me every time. If you could see where I was, if, if you could see before I saw it, if you could see before I moved it ahead of time, you'd have no problem beating me. And that's the reason, listen, church, that's the reason God has no problem beating Satan because he can see ahead of time what the next move is. That's providence. Providence is God's ability to see ahead of time. In fact, Look at this verse we put on the screen. Ephesians 1.11 says, In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him, watch this, it's underlined, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Who works out everything, not some things, but who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. You see, divine providence does not destroy our freedom of choice, but rather, listen to this, Divine providence takes our freedom into account and in the infinite wisdom of God sets a course to fulfill God's will. I don't know how God does it. I don't understand how God takes our free will into account and still yet sets the course to accomplish His free will. But He can and He does. And that's providence. I think probably the one of the greatest stories to illustrate this in the Bible of the providence of God and how God allows us to have our own choices, our own free will, and, and yet at the same time accomplishes His will. How in the world does He do that? I think one of the greatest illustrations of that is the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. You know the story. How Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. How Joseph's brothers mistreated him and, and they, they sold him into slavery. And God in his wisdom allowed that to happen. God in his wisdom allowed these men to sell their brother into slavery. This was a wicked thing. God was not pleased with this. And God allowed them that freedom of choice. And yet at the same time, all of their sin and all of their, their hateful decisions that they made were worked together for the good because Joseph ended up living in Egypt where there was a famine that, that covered the entire land. And, and Joseph was able to work in preparation for the famine. And, and because he worked in preparation for the famine, a, a seven-year famine, famine, he saved many, 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 probably hundreds of thousands of people, including his own family. And God's divine providence is what made that possible. Here's what God did. God could see ahead of time. 
In his providence, he could see ahead of time. He knew there was a famine in the land. He knew that Joseph needed to go to Egypt. He knew that Joseph would be the person who could lead that country to put aside the food that they would need. He, he knew that Joseph could manage this and, and that many, many lives would be saved. So how did he get him from where he was to Egypt? He allowed Joseph's brothers to have their freedom and to choose their course of action. And God in his providence used it all to accomplish his will. In fact, look at this verse on the screen. Look at this verse. Genesis uh, chapter 50 verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. For what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Look at this. You intended it to harm me. That was your plan. That was your choice. That was your desire. You intended to harm me. But God intended something else. God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done to save of many lives. I don't know how God does this, but God allows us to have the freedom of choice and still yet, even with the freedom of choice, because he's able to see ahead, he's able to weave it together to still accomplish his purpose and his plan. See, the providence of God stands in direct opposition to the idea that our world is governed by chance or by fate. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no such thing as fate. There is God. There is no such thing as random chance. There is a sovereign God who providentially rules over the world in which we live. Divine providence is taught in Romans 8.28. You know that verse, don't you? We'll put it on the screen. It says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Would you notice that phrase, all things? You know what all things mean? All things means all things. You see, God is never out of control. God is never worried about, I don't know how I'm going to handle this. God's never wondering what he will do next. Satan can take his worst, and yet even the evil that is tearing our world apart, God can use that to accomplish his purpose and his plan. You know, I got thinking about that. It must be frustrating for Satan. No matter what he does, he finds that his plans are ultimately will always be thwarted, and ultimately, good will come out of it. I mean, of course, the greatest example of that is the cross, isn't it? When Satan had his plan and he had worked it out and, and all of a sudden, he, three days later, he realized that once again, God wins. Once again, good comes out of bad. Now, the book of Esther, uh, that's what we're talking about today. The book of Esther that never mentioned God's name is a book about God who is orchestrating the events that happen in this book. And God is clearly seen throughout this book orchestrating the events that we read about. And here's what we'll learn as we walk through this book. God directs the coincidences of our lives. All of those things, when you stand back and look at it, boy, wasn't that a coincidence? I mean, do you know, remember how this happened? And remember when we went there? And, and remember how all of a sudden, unexpectedly, this came and that check arrived in the mail and... And what we really find in the book of Esther is this. No, those aren't coincidences. It's the providential care of God. 
See, God is sovereign, and God is good. And he providentially rules and reigns over all people, over all times, and in all places. Even in a distant pagan land like Persia. You see, that's where the book of Esther occurs. The book of Esther does not occur in the godly land of Israel. The book of Esther occurs in the pagan land of Persia. The book of Esther is one of the greatest examples of God's providence because in that pagan land, when you read this book, it appears, underline the word, it appears that God is missing. In this pagan land where they're far, far, far from, from their homeland, it appears that God is missing. So let me give you an overview of the book in order to understand uh, the message of this book of Esther. We, we really need to put it in its context. We need to understand the, the biblical and, and the, the world history that surrounds it. So let me try to give you a context real quick. I hope you're going to take notes on this. First of all, uh, the Jews of Judah and Jerusalem were carried away into exile by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that, that God had prophesied that if, if his people would obey him, he would bless them. But his, if, if his people disobeyed him, they would experience his judgment. And after repeated calls of asking his people to come back to him, they continually ignored him. They continually ignored his prophets. So eventually God sent Nebuchadnezzar who was the king in Babylon, to Jerusalem. He destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and he took the people out of Jerusalem back to Babylon as slaves. It's called the Babylonian exile. Now, you need to understand something. The destruction of Jerusalem, and especially the destruction of the temple, was a turning point in biblical history that forever changed the character of Judaism. It was a turning point, unlike... It's hard to express how important that was. Now, as the people lived in Persia there for many, many, or Babylon for many, many years, Cyrus of Persia, eventually in 539 B.C., he came and he defeated Nebuchadnezzar. Cyrus of Persia, by the providence of God, Cyrus of Persia defeated Nebuchadnezzar and he allowed the people of God to return home. He allowed them to leave where they were living there in Babylon, and go back home. He not only allowed them to go home, he said, I'll help finance the rebuilding of your city. I will help finance the rebuilding of your temple. So he allowed the people of God to go back. But they'd been living there many, many years. So you know what happened? Only some of them went back. A good number of them stayed in Babylon. They'd built homes there. Once they had experienced freedom under Cyrus of Persia, they were no longer slaves. They, they had the ability to live there like everybody else. They had their Jewish communities there. No, they didn't have the temple, but they'd built their homes there. They had kind of put their roots down there. This, is, this was home. They had married people and had kids and grandkids. And uh, we're going to pick up all of this and leave. And so a lot of them decided to stay. I mean, what's left in Jerusalem anyway? Last time we were there, it was destroyed. Last time we were there, it was rubble. So a lot of them decided to stay. And so in 539 B.C., when God allowed, or Cyrus allowed the people of God to go back, the books of Esther, I'm sorry, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, which precede Esther, the two books right before Esther, 
Ezra and Nehemiah, these books tell the story of the Jews, some of those who went back to the homeland, and they rebuilt the city and rebuilt the temple. That's, that's found in the two books preceding Esther. However, for those Jews that chose not to go back, those Jews who chose to live in Babylon in their Jewish communities, the book of Esther tells their story. And here's the story. The big question is this. Everybody listen. Over the Life Center, I want you to listen to this. The big question in the time of Esther, as they lived in Babylon, the big question was this. Are we still God's people, even though we're not living in God's land? Are we still God's people, even though this, we're living in a pagan land? Are we, for those that were living there in the temple area, those who were living in Jerusalem, they, they knew that they were God's people, but how about those people who were living in this distant pagan land where there was no temple, where there was no holy city, where there was no prophet to speak? And the question was basically this, are we still God's covenant people? Does God still care about us? Or has He abandoned us because of our judgment and our sin? So they were living in a land where it appeared, it appeared God was missing. They were living in a distant land, away from their homeland, away from what used to be their temple. They, they were living there now, and the question was, is God still with us? Is God still here? Does God still care? They were living in a way so, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a place that was so far away from where they used to live, so far away from the place where God said, "I will bless you in this land." But they weren't living there. So the book of Esther was written watch this. This is genius. The book of Esther was written without any reference to God, because they were living in a distant land, and the question was, "Is God here?" Does God care? And so let me summarize the story. You got your Bibles? If your Bibles has chapter headings, we're going to kind of run through it real quickly and just give you a, a snapshot of the story. This is just an introduction to the series today. But in chapter 1, we learn about a lady. Uh, the first person on the scene is a lady named Queen Vashti. Her and her husband, who is the king, who's named Xerxes. Queen Vashti eventually, and I'll tell you the story next time, Queen Vashti eventually loses her crown. It's, it's, an, it's an amazing story, but she loses her crown. That's chapter 1. She's no longer queen. Chapter 2, if you look at the heading, it says Esther is made queen. Now, who is Esther? We'll learn this as we go through the story, but Esther was a Jewish woman. The thing is, the king didn't know she was a Jew. Her king, she, she's the new queen, they had this beauty pageant. She was chosen, and the king didn't know she was a Jew, but she was. And she was living there as queen uh, in that area in Susa. Now, go to chapter 3. There was an evil man named Haman who hated the Jews. He especially hated one Jew named Mordecai. But Haman was like the Hitler of his day. He decided not only to do away with Mordecai, he wanted to do away with all the Jews. And not just all the Jews living there in Babylon, but all the Jews that were living around the world. And so Haman developed this plot to kill Mordecai and all the other Jews that he could find. He was the Hitler of his day. He wanted to exterminate the Jews. In chapter 4, Mordecai, the man that Haman hates, 
happens to be related to the new queen. In fact, he's her adoptive father. And Mordecai sends word that Haman is about to wipe out all the Jews. And he says, oh, by the way, you know that if they kill all the Jews, guess what? They're going to kill the queen too. Because don't forget, you are a Jew. And then he says this, and it's probably, if you know any verses in, in Esther, you probably know this verse. Look in chapter 4, verse 14. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, this is probably the famous phrase that you've heard, and who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. Esther understands that she needs to do something, but if she goes in to ask the king for his favor, for his help, It could cost her her life, and we'll explain that to you later. But in chapter 5, she decides, if I'm going, I have to try to do something to protect my Jewish people. And so she goes in, and and she asks the king for a favor. That's chapter 5. And and the favor is this, will you save my people? And he says, what do you mean your people? Well, I'm a Jew. Haman is about to, to extinguish all the Jews. This man that's second in command in your kingdom, he's about to kill me and all of my people. That didn't sit well with the king, as you can imagine. And there's a twist in the story where Haman is hanged on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. That's chapter 7. Chapter 8 and following, the king issues an edict that spares the Jews. Now, that's a quick run-through. I understand that. But let me try to bring it all together in the last three or four minutes here. I want you to look, look this way in the Life Center. Do you all remember the board game, Mousetrap? Do you remember that game? I used to love that game. It intrigued me because of the way everything worked. I really didn't care about the little, the little spaces and moving your things around the board and all that kind of thing. You know the part I liked, right? It's when you turn that handle. And I wrote it down here. The the player turns the crank, which rotates a vertical gear connected to a horizontal gear. And as that gear turns, it pushes an an elastic lever, and it snaps into place, and and it hits a swinging boot. And the boot then in turn causes the bucket to go over, sending a marble down a zigzagging kind of rickety stairs kind of thing. And that goes into a chute, and then the marble hits a vertical pole. And when it hits the vertical pole, it causes movement. And then this ball goes through that platform, and it goes down into a bathtub. And when it goes into the bathtub, uh, then look right here. When it goes down into the bathtub, the ball drops down, and it hits the seesaw. And when it hits the seesaw, then the guy jumps off, and he, he lands in the cup, and then the cup causes the pole that's holding the trap to vibrate, and all of a sudden, the trap comes down. Whew, my goodness. How many people played that game? Raise your hand. Over the lifestyle, I'd love to see how many people have your hands raised. Uh, you know, I think they still sell it. Uh, I, I, I don't have one, but uh, we may buy one for Lily here soon so we can play it together. <laughs> Here's the point I'm trying to make with Mousetrap. Here's the point. When you see how this happens, which 
causes that to happen, which causes this to happen, which causes that to happen, which causes this to happen, which causes that to happen, and suddenly the mousetrap falls. It would be crazy for you to look back and say, man, what a coincidence. Wow. Can you believe how that, that's amazing, how, just the coincidence, how all that happened. And you realize, no, there's nothing coincidental about it. Somebody who designed that. Somebody who could see ahead that if this happens, then that happens, and then this happens, and that happens, and this happens, and that happens, and suddenly, boom. I want you to think of the book of Esther as the game Mousetrap, and it's not just coincidental that this happens in chapter 1, and that happens in chapter 2, and this happens in chapter 3, and that happens in chapter 4, and this happens in chapter 5, and that happens in chapter 6, and, and on and on and on. And suddenly, the person who was about to exterminate the Jews is gone. It's dealt with. Now, you can read the book of Esther, and you can step back and you say, Wow, what a coincidence. Man, it's just amazing. All these coincidences that fell into place. But if you understand it all, this book is not about coincidence. This book, where God appears to be missing, is screaming, He's not missing. He's providentially looking at everything. And in His providence, He's orchestrating all the events that you see in this book. Listen, you don't see the name God in the book of Esther, but you see His fingerprints all over the story. Even in the most pagan corner of the world, Persia, God is ruling all things for the benefit of His people to bring glory to His name. Even in the most pagan place in the world, Persian and Babylon, God is at work. God is not missing. He's not confined to Jerusalem. He was there working on behalf of His people. Karen Jobes wrote a commentary on Esther and she said this, now, I'm going to put it on the screen. I want you to see it. You have to think about it for a moment. Great statement. The great paradox of Esther is that God is omnipotently present even where God is most conspicuously absent. So, Pastor, what does that even mean? Here's what it means. Translation. God is working even when it looks like He's missing. He's working. Even when it looks like God is missing. For those of you who feel like God's missing in your world and in your life, I want you to know something. God is working. Even when you look around and it seems like God is missing, God is working. And all those things that are happening around you, and you can't understand how it's going to ever work out for good. The Bible says in Romans 8, 28, it will. This will happen, which will lead to that to happen, and then this will cause that, and this will turn, and that will happen, this will happen, and that will happen, and God providentially somehow brings it around for your good and for His glory. So the book of Esther tells us this story. And one of the major themes of Esther is this. It's the reversal of destiny. Throughout the book, again and again, you'll see that something is about to happen. This person is heading in this direction, and there is a sudden reversal of destiny. It's not always a good reversal, but there's a sudden reversal of destiny. And the book is, 
is written to show us God ultimately is the one who can change our destiny. This God that appears to be missing. This God that you you do not find Him in the book at all. But He's in the background. Working everything out providentially. For their good and for His glory. I want you to listen to me. Over in the Life Center, I want you to listen to me. You probably are not going to hear an audible voice from God. And whatever you're facing right now, you probably will not see the face of God. And you may go through your life praying for a miracle and never finding it. In fact, you may go through a certain time where you're praying and it just seems like God's not even there, that He's not even listening. It's as if if God's missing. The book of Esther, Esther says, no, He's not missing. And even when you don't see him, he's working. Even when you don't see him, he's working. So I wonder how it would change if starting today and this week, I wonder how it would change in your perspective if you thought, God, I'm going to trust you to be in charge of all the coincidences of my life. God, I'm going to trust you today. I'm going to declare that I don't see how this mess can ever be anything. But I'm going to trust that the God I can't see is the God I can still trust. I'm going to choose to believe that the invisible hand of God is at work for my benefit, for my good. I wonder how it would change this week if you just decided to make this your prayer. Lord, would you work in this for my good and for your glory? Would you work in this scary situation for my good and for your glory? Lord, would you work in this uncertain time for my good and for your glory? Lord, would you work through this situation where it looks like I don't see how anything ever could come from this that would be good. Just like Joseph in the pit. How can anything good ever come from this? God, I choose to believe that today you can work for my good and for your glory. You can see ahead, and I can't. So today I choose to put my trust in your providence. Would you pray with me? My heart is heavy today for some of you because I know lately perhaps it felt like God is missing. Maybe it just feels like God's missing from your home, from your marriage. You've been praying for that. You want it to get better. But it's just like God's missing. It's just like He's not there. Like nothing is changing. Nothing's getting better. Maybe you've been praying for your parents. Maybe you've been praying for your dad to stop drinking. Maybe you've been praying for your son or daughter to come back, that wayward son or daughter. But it's like God is missing. And the book of Esther is written to show us He's not. He's not missing. He's not gone on vacation. He has not turned His back on you. Providentially, He's working 
may take a while before you see the end result. It may be some scary times before you get to the other side. Providentially, he's working. So today, whether you, you stand there and pray, or you sit there and pray, or you come to the altar, or you go to the cross of the Life Center, I want you to pray this prayer. God, I bring this situation to you, and I trust that you'll work for your glory and for my good. In Jesus' name, amen.